All right. Well, hey, uh, grab your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're wake, uh, making our way through the book of 1 Corinthians, and the series is called Church Under Construction. Um, we are the church. We are under construction. You and me hang the sign around your neck that says, God at work, because he's not done with us as a church. He's just getting started with each one of us this side of heaven. So we're rejoicing in that. We're learning a ton about what God has planned for our church and for us individually. I read this week an interesting headline, Associated Press. Here's the, here's the, uh, the title. City evacuates 45,000 people to defuse massive World War II bomb. In Berlin, officials in Germany's western city say some 45,000 residents had to be evacuated as officials tried to defuse a World War II-era bomb discovered in the Rhine River. City officials said Saturday that the massive British 1.8-ton bomb will be defused early Sunday, requiring all residents within a radius of about 1.2 miles from the bomb site to leave their homes for the whole day. Officials say seven nursing homes, two hospitals, and a prison are also being evacuated. Train and road traffic in the area... Uh, northwest of Frankfurt, will come to a halt. The British bomb was found last week next to a different 275-pound bomb dropped there by the U.S. during World War II after the Rhine's water level fell due to the lack of rain. How would you like it if in your town they found a 1.2-ton bomb in the river and somebody came to you and said, we need you to just get out for Sunday? Would you leave? Yeah, I think you would. How scary is that? Well, I think that perfectly ties into this morning's message because they handled this bomb with extreme care to protect the community because this is highly explosive. And boy, anybody who gets near this thing, if something goes wrong, people could die, you could get hurt, you could get maimed. Well, this morning we're going to talk about what happens when sin is found inside God's church. Uh, And it is exactly like the water level of this river lowering down and an explosive bomb being uncovered. Uh, And it's been there for a while, but there comes a point when sin in God's church comes to the surface. And how carefully do God's people approach sin in the church? Because listen, sin has the power to explode our congregation. Sin in your heart has the power to explode your life. And so when the explosives come to the surface, God has a lot to say to us about how we are to handle the explosives and how we are to protect the community while we're handling the explosives. That's this morning's message. Why don't we pray, and then we'll get into God's Word. Father, this morning, this, this text, this passage is a very hard one, uh, Lord, and um, yet I trust that you have brought men and women into this room this morning to hear it, uh, perhaps as a word of encouragement as they try and deal lovingly with people in their own lives who have, um, who have sin in their lives. But, Lord, I trust there are also some here this morning Um, who have brought baggage in, and uh, they are caught up in some sins, and Lord, here you are to speak to them through me. Our prayer is just that as our ears are open to you and as uh, your word is open, may you speak to us clearly, Lord. Uh, We want to hear from you. We invite you, Spirit of the living God, to be in our midst, at work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and those of you who know me, Boy, if you're a visitor here, you're just getting a lot of things that are not usual. But those of you who know me and know the way I preach, this is a very, very different message. Okay, and certain texts, I feel like a shepherd up here, certain texts 
Uh, God calls me to be light, jovial, to get the truth across in a very warm and relational way. This morning is a very hard text to preach. Uh, And there will be all the full measure of love I can muster up as we talk about dealing with sin, but it's going to be a hard one. So just brace yourself, but open your heart to the Lord here even at the beginning and hear what he has for us today. All right, chapter 5, verse 1. The introductory words are done. Paul has given them four chapters of introduction. He's told them what he's thinking. There's some problems, and yet he's encouraged them, and now he gets specific. Chapter 5, verse 1. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Okay, sin in the church, sin in the church. Let's begin our theology of sin in the church at the beginning. First, everyone who comes into the church tracks in with them a history of sin across the carpet. All right? When you came into God's church, whether as a child or as an adult, you tracked in sin across the carpet. Every one of us brings in a lifetime's worth of sin into God's church. That's where it starts. We're all sinners. In fact, if we deny that we have sinned, we call God a liar to his face. And so we have to admit that we're sinful even to be welcomed into the church by God. Okay, and at Corinth, boy, they were sinful. I mean, Corinth was a, what I would call a sex-crazed cesspool. I mean, it was awful. And our world, I would say, bears a striking, striking resemblance to it. But some in Corinth had a history of marital infidelity. Uh, some practiced prostitution. Some visited prostitutes. Some were visiting prostitutes while Paul wrote them this letter. Some uh, had practiced homosexuality or pre- were involved in premarital sex. This guy who we're talking about today was involved in ex- He wasn't even married to this girl, and it was incestual. Uh, and guess what? God saved them. Guess what? This is a believer we're talking about. God saved him. All right, so at the very beginning, listen, it doesn't matter the sin you bring into God's church. It doesn't matter. It can all be forgiven and you can be welcomed as a full family member in the household of God. And if you are, no sin will ever drive you out of his presence. That's a good spot for an amen right there. For a group, a room full of sinful, dirty people, that is a huge spot for you to understand that your sins can be taken care of fully at the cross. That's what we would call your position in Christ. But then on a daily basis, there's what we would call your performance in Christ. You are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You are to begin putting into practice all of the words of the Lord Jesus on a day-to-day basis. And this believer was failing at doing that. The truth is we have the power to win our battles with sin and to leave the old ways behind us after we put our faith in Christ. And that's great news. But here, this guy, he was living in sexual sin, and it says with his father's wife. What does that mean? Uh, It doesn't mean his mom. It means that his father was married to this probably his stepmom, and either, there was, either he died or either there was divorce, but if she's on the market again, who knows, maybe this relationship ended the marriage with the father. I don't know, but let's just all agree, even by today's standards, this is like way wrong. Okay, way, like way wrong. And it's not way wrong on the Jerry Springer show, okay? It's not out there. It would be like somebody sitting next to you said, yeah, I'm in this new relationship, and you know, you want to meet her? Come. And you'd be like, that is way wrong, even, even the world around them in Corinth 
where they had this like temple to Aphrodite and they had prostitutes in this temple that would go out into the streets and, and you would go to this temple and engage in prostitution. Even these people would be like, that's wrong. What that guy's doing is wrong. Where does he go to? Oh, he goes to that Christian church, huh? Oh. All right, so now you're seeing why this is such a big deal. This is just wrong. Okay, note that this guy was living in a very flagrant, I mean, outrageous, even beyond the common bounds of the depraved world sin. And, and the point here is this guy, I mean, couldn't be talked to. This was so bad, he just needed to be dealt with. So who becomes the target of what we would call church discipline? Well, it's not the guy who is really trying to win his battles with sin and maybe has a slip-up occasionally, okay? So take heart. If you are trying to win your battles with sin, but you just slip up now and then, hey, this isn't for you. Church discipline is not, we're not going to come after you and be like, okay, you're next. Uh, this is the guy who it's like, he doesn't, he's not even trying. He's, he's not even trying to win this battle with sin. He's running as fast as he can after it. When it's habitual, when there's no repentance, when there's no talking to him, that's when church discipline happens. One writer says, when you see evil with delight and persistency. Church discipline must happen. This specific sin is called out in Leviticus 18, 7 to 8. It's forbidden. This guy had no excuse. He knew better, and he was still doing it. This brings us to the first challenge that God's word has for us. If we're going to be a church that honors God, and you want to be that, right? If we're going to be a church that invites his blessing and not his judgment, we have to know how to deal with sin. Here's the first thing. Jot this down. It's very simple. Call it sin. You got to call it sin. In Corinth, they were arrogant in spite of this. We don't know if they were arrogant and they were like, oh, we're, all, we're the best church on earth. We're like the magic kingdom of churches. And Paul's like, you feel that way and you've got this going on over here? Or it might worse even be, we're the best church on earth. We're the greatest because we even have people like that in here, aren't we? So it's because of that that they feel like they're arrogant. Okay, and churches today fall into both of those traps. Oh yeah, we're great. We're honoring the Lord. Yeah, we allow that, but uh, and other churches promote it and applaud it. Uh, different various sins. But we have to call it sin. Listen to the words used here. It says, you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So we have to mourn sin in God's church. The word mourn means to lament with deep anguish of the soul. Ought you not to mourn? And then it says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. So we're to mourn it and we're to remove sinful members from the common fellowship in God's church. John MacArthur said, when we cease to be shocked by sin, we lose a strong defense against it. We have to call it sin. All right, that's the beginning. Let me give you some common destructive patterns of dealing with sin. This would be what not to do what we must not do in our church, what you must not do in your life with your sin. Are you ready? Here they come. Uh, first, don't rationalize it. Don't rationalize it. Uh, here's how this sounds when confronted with sin. Well, well, I don't know. I could, I could see both sides. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess I'm undecided about that. And um, I'm not sure how I view that. I, I don't know what my thinking is on that. Rationalizing. Rationalizing. This is how you lose the battle of truth in the council chambers of your own heart. You start to rationalize it. And it happens invisibly, secretly, deep down inside. Well, I know my parents believe that. I don't know. I can see it both. I've got a friend who sees it differently. I don't know. I'm not... Rationalize, rationalize. Your soul is generating reasons for sin. 
empathy for sin, different perspectives than what God's word has to say. Don't, don't rationalize it. Hey, if God's word says it's sin, call it sin. Uh, next, don't hide it. Don't hide it. Here's how this sounds. Well, I mean, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, okay, yeah, I mean, but as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I mean, what's the big deal? Um, as long as nobody knows, like, really, who's it hurting, what, so, so you're hiding it. Um, and you're hiding it because you know it's wrong. The fact that you're hiding it proves that you know it's wrong. After you've rationalized it, you begin to hide it. And this is, all, this is also in the private life. So in the private of your own heart, you rationalize it. And in the private of your own life, you begin to engage in it. This is you internally coping with the pressure that you feel. And guess where that pressure against sin is coming from? It's God's Holy Spirit convicting you. You are wrestling with God alone. But God sees it. God knows. Don't rationalize it. Don't hide it. Even if you do, it's going to come out. Hide it from your parents, only so long. Hide it from your spouse, only so long. Hide it from the church, only so It's coming out. God will squeeze it out. Then comes the external coping with sin. Uh, don't minimize it. Drop that down. Don't minimize it. Now it's out, and you've got, other, you've got mom in your face. Uh, now it's out, and, and you've got a Christian friend or your spouse in your face. Well, now you've got to cope externally with the pressure that's coming against your sin. So what do you do? You minimize it. Well, it's not so bad. I could be doing far worse things than that. My friends, my brother, my... What are you doing? You're minimizing it. You're taking the gravity of the sin, and you're trying to decrease it. Um, far worse things I could be doing. Don't minimize it. Uh, and then eventually, don't excuse it. You'll start excusing it. Now you're trying to escape the mounting conviction that God is bringing to your life. Excuse it. Well, maybe from your point of view, it's wrong. Maybe from, but I mean, I just see things differently. I'm excusing it. Sure, okay, it's wrong to you. That's fine, but I mean, I just, I believe differently. And other people believe that too. I'm excusing it. Uh, another way to excuse it is to attack the accusers. Oh, you're so perfect. Oh, you, you think you're so perfect, huh? Who are, who are you to talk to me? You think you've got it all together, huh? Who are you to come and talk to me about this? You're excusing it. You're attacking the accuser instead of looking into your own soul. Don't excuse it. When this happens, you begin to distance those who are being the voice of truth from you. Systematically, you will strategically distance yourself from those who are speaking God's word into your soul. And it's on purpose because you're trying to excuse your sin in your own heart. Don't excuse it. Don't rationalize it. Don't hide it. Don't minimize it. Don't excuse it. Don't indulge it. Jot that down. See, now the sin begins to take over. You thought you were in control, but sin is a giant, ugly monster. And you let him in. And now he's controlling you. And now you can't stop. And now you're doing things to a level that you didn't think you would, and you can't stop. That's called bondage. So what do you do? It's called indulgence. More and more and more and more, because sin demands so much from you. Sin is an evil Lord. And if you give him back jurisdiction over even one area of your life, you will be miserable, and you will be enslaved. Don't indulge it. And finally, don't advocate it. Final, the final choice to make on a sinful 
path is you begin, you begin to advocate it and to try and win people to your camp, to your party, to your point of view, because everyone else who told you it was wrong has left. You're all alone, and you've got nothing else. These are the don'ts. Call it sin. Don't rationalize it. Don't hide it. Don't minimize it. Don't excuse it. Don't indulge it. Don't advocate it. And even right now, take a moment in your own heart and ask if you're doing any of these things. Ask if there's any of these things going on in the secret places of your own heart. Because God's Spirit brought you here this morning to hear this. Don't ignore it. Call it sin. Subpoint here under call it sin. Let's talk about church discipline. Verse 3, let's read this and then we'll give a few subpoints. Verse 3, Paul said, He should be removed among you, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, a few things we learn about church discipline here. First, jot this down. The process of church discipline is ordinarily gradual. Uh, So this would be an exception. In Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus lays out the process for church discipline. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's ordinarily the process. It's gradual. It could take take a year. It takes a long time. In this guy's case, straight to the last step. It's skipping all steps. He just needs to be out of there. But it is ordinarily gradual. Notice, too, that Paul is talking to the congregation. He's not talking to the sinful guy. He's talking to us about how we are supposed to act toward this guy who's caught up in sin. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord and my spirit is with you. The the best translation for that is probably capital S, my spirit, the, the Holy Spirit of God is with you. With the power of the Lord. In other words, don't wait for me. When you get together and God is in your midst, God is offended by this. Don't put it off. This has to happen now. Note the gravity. It's ordinarily gradual. Jot this down. The process of church discipline is painful. Uh, It's painful. He says, deliver him over to Satan. That sounds harsh. The word deliver is a strong word. It's a judicial act of sentencing borrowed from from the courtroom. Uh, It at least means to excommunicate him from the common fellowship of believers to send him out under Satan's Uh, kingdom into the world so that he can't just keep coming and oh praise the lord oh and go to small group and share his struggles no that's not the way it works you have to pick you can't have your love affair with sin and your new life with christ you have to pick hand him over to satan uh, for the destruction of his flesh the word flesh basically means body just means body but it also has a spiritual overtone so it means the inclinations we have to sin against God wrapped up in a body. You get that? So his flesh, his inclinations to sin against God wrapped up in a body needs to be destroyed. It needs to be demolished. That could mean, and it has meant in other places biblically, death. This is heading to death. Probably here it doesn't mean that. It could mean sickness. It could mean a trial or suffering. Something to alert this man that God is angry. He just 
He's about to go round one with God. And at the end of round one, he'll have a choice. And then he'll go round two with God. Have you known, I've known people, have you known people in your life who they were at the crossroads, choose your sin or choose to come back to Christ, and they made the wrong choice? And many months later, you run into them, and they are utterly crushed. They look bad. Everything in their life is going wrong. They still can't figure it out. And you're like, you just went round one with God. You've got to get this area of your life fixed or you're going to go round two. I know several people. It's amazing how it happens when they choose their sin and not Christ. It all breaks loose in their life. Pain, suffering, that's called the Lord's discipline. For the destruction of his flesh. Okay, so the process is ordinarily gradual. The process is painful, but jot this down. The purpose of church discipline is restoration. It says so that his soul may be saved at the judgment. So here the soul or the spirit is the undying person. It's the immaterial you. And the point is that at the end of this painful process, this person would be restored to a right relationship with God. Call it sin. Call it sin or this person will not get to a place of restoration. Okay, here's the next point. Jot this down. Flip over your bulletin. Cleanse the church. Cleanse the church. Reading out of verse 6. It says in verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? What does that mean? <laughs> Doesn't that sound weird? He starts to give them kind of an object lesson here. And leaven is like a little bit of dough left out of the bread for a week or two. And then you mix it back in with the fresh dough. And it, I don't do this, but I'm told that it creates a different kind, like a sourdough bread and it rises. Am I getting that right? All right, so the point is this. When you mix a little leaven with a lot of dough, just try and get back in there and get the leaven out. Okay, just like with Play-Doh. Take red Play-Doh and yellow Play-Doh, mix them all together for 30 minutes, and then try and get the red Play-Doh back out. You can't. Here's the point. The sinful person is about to be talked about as a little leaven. All right, and the little leaven, if he continues to mix in with God's church, is going to change the landscape, the spiritual landscape and makeup of the people. And it's going to start corrupting and polluting everyone. So the answer is, don't let it happen. Get it out. Get him out. Cleanse the church. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Cleanse the church is the point. The background is, as as, uh, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt, God came and said, I'm going to save you now. But I want you to do this thing. And he did this thing called Passover. Put the blood over the doorpost. My destroying angel will come. You'll be spared. And then every year they would remember this thing called Passover in Israel. One of the things they would do is at the beginning of the week, they'd search through the house and find all the leaven and throw it out into the trash. Um, And then for a whole week, they would eat only unleavened bread to recall how quickly they had to leave Egypt. It was called Passover. It was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And here, Paul is using that, that they're familiar with, to try and show them, just like that happened, you've got to get the old out. Um, To the congregation, it means get the old, sin-lifed person out. To you personally, it means get the old way that you used to do things, the old sin in your life. Don't even mix a little bit of it into your life. Get it out. Cleanse the church. Clean out the old leaven. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, 
Yep, I've seen church discipline done in the past. I didn't like it. Some of you may be thinking, I was a a part of it. Maybe you fell under church discipline. Um, Others of you may be thinking you were a part of a church that didn't do church discipline. And uh, you're wondering how it would go. But you know that when they didn't do it, it didn't go good. It was awful. All right. Some common objections to doing church discipline would be first, that's not loving. That's not very loving, Um, which is wrong. What What is unloving is allowing the person that you say you care about to continue in their sin unchecked. That's unloving. Okay? The most unloving thing you can do to a person who is caught up in sin is to allow them to continue down that path unchecked. That is unloving. The most loving thing you can do in the spirit of Galatians 6.1 is to restore them gently. Anyone who is caught in a sin, restore them gently. And that, that has the feeling of like a, a bone that's come out of the socket. You should restore it gently. <clears throat> Another common objection is, well, it's not your place. You're sinful too, so who are you to go and... That's a, that's a valid objection, right? Who are you to go and talk to a person when you've sinned? Um, but it's based on God's authority and God's word that you are going. You're going to represent God. Okay, you're not God. You're going to represent God. And you are going with all the humility of a sinful person, and you are trying to not get caught up in what they're doing. So careful. But you're going to speak as one who speaks the very words of God to this person who's caught up in sin. All right? You're kind of sitting on the same side of the table with them, looking across at a holy God. You're not across the table for the whole, oh, you've got to cut it out. You know? No, you're getting alongside of them, and you're pointing them to the living God in love. Another objection is, well, it's not very Christ-like. Okay, okay. Jesus was so meek and mild. He, he wouldn't hurt his soul. My Jesus would never do this to someone. My Jesus would never confront someone like this and treat them the way that you're treating them. It's not very Christ-like. Um, okay, let's talk about Christ-like. Revelation chapter 3, verse 19. The Lord Jesus sends a letter to a church in Thyatira. Okay, assume this says to the church in Harvest Palace. Verse 19, it says, Listen, I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Hey, this is a great report card so far for this church. I know that you're doing great things. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Jesus knows You by name, if you are bringing unrepentant, hidden sin into his church. And imagine if we got the letter and it said, you know, Chuck so-and-so, I know. Sharon such-and-such, I know. Your name could easily be named right here, by name. And then what does he say? I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. I've known for a while. I've known for longer than you think. In fact, don't don't misunderstand the time I've given you to repent as me condoning what you're doing. I've given her time to repent. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great 
tribulation, unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Hey, that's your Jesus. And he doesn't let you get away with it because he loves you and because he loves his church too much to allow sin to run rampant through the congregation. So common objections to church discipline just don't fly. It's not loving. No, no, it is loving. It's not your place. No, it's your place. It's not Christ-like. Yes. Yes, it is. But you're right. It needs to be exercised with great caution. It, it should not be over-exercised. Some of you have been part of churches where they did church discipline on silly things, foolish things, legalistic things. And it's not the job of the leaders of this church to police everything in your life, from your dress code to your social life to your alcohol consumption. It's not our job, okay? Um, But we do have, all of us have, the challenge from God to exercise his authority and to challenge those unrepentant believers who are continuing in a life of sin to change and to change quick because God's judgment is coming. So call it sin, uh, cleanse the church, And yet, third, write this down, clarify the distinction. Clarify the distinction. Look at verse 9. In verse 9 it says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So clarify the distinction. There is a difference between those who are not believers and those who are, and you have two different ways of interacting with uh, people who are not Christians and who are sinning, and people who are Christians and who are sinning. Well, the Corinthians, they got it backwards. Paul had apparently talked to them about this before, and they decided that all those neighbors out there, all those thugs that live on their block, they were going to let them have it about their sin. But the people in the church, oh, it's all right, we'll just allow that. So they got it upside down. Uh, the point here is, when it comes to those who are outside the world, there's two dangers, all right? You might want to jot these down. The first danger is that we become like them completely. We become totally like them, meaning we sin exactly like they sin. But the second danger is that we become nothing like them at all. We cut ourselves off from them completely. That is equally wrong. All right? Because if we become exactly like them, indulging in sin, then we are inviting God's judgment on ourselves. But if we become nothing like them and put ourselves in a bubble, we are turning them over to God's judgment and they can't be saved because they have to hear the gospel. They have to see the gospel. All right? Both are dangerous to the church. So how do I relate to non-believers who sin? We'll call it sin. Testify to God's coming judgment, but don't impose our Christian worldview. Don't expect them to live according to our moral code because they can't. All right? They can't. They're outside of your jurisdiction. They will say, they will quote the Bible, and they say, well, Jesus said, don't judge. Who are you to judge? Don't judge, lest you be judged, right? So you're not judging, but it says God will judge them. You're testifying to them that God's judgment is coming. You don't have to worry about me. You ever have somebody who slipped with a swear word in your prayer? Oh, I'm sorry. You're a Christian. You don't have to worry about me. God heard it. God's judgment is coming. Who cares what I think? That's the spirit of how you interact with those outside the church. But the problem here is 
How do we interact with believers who are blatantly sinful in the church? Well, I would say this. We are to avoid common, normal, social interaction with them. Let's unpack what that means. Listen to 2 Thessalonians three fourteen to 15 It says this, If anyone does not obey what we say in the letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. But get this, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So you're interacting with this person, uh, but it's not the same. Hey, listen, since we had this conversation, listen, since you made that decision, listen, since it's not the same between us, all right? And, and with the church, it's not the same with the church. Even if a person needs to be put out of the church, believers can still maintain contact. But listen, this comes up. Hey, hey it's not the same between us. Ever since you made that choice, you've you got to get this right, all right? No, I don't think the church was a bunch of bullies. No, I don't think, I think they got it right. You need, you need to make this area right. And you have these interactions with this person, not as an enemy, but as a brother. You treat them with love. But things aren't the same. And notice that it's expanded here, not just sexual immorality, but other things included could be uh, finances, greed, the, the tongue, possessions. Um, and, and so covetousness is mentioned, which would be the sinful desire to acquire more and more and more at the expense of others, which leads to the next one, swindlers who were stealing away things. This was probably even happening in the church because the next chapter is about lawsuits among believers. So, you know, Terry uh, stuck Eric... Uh, and it was so wrong and shady in the church, and he's like, what do I do? All right, so, so there's swindlers going on. That guy needs a talking to. There's revilers. So there's, you know, Dave who's shouting out what he thinks about the leadership of this church, and, and it means to verbally assail leaders or others in the church. There's revilers who just constantly are running down and stirring up strife. They fall under church discipline. So there's many different reasons for discipline. But it says, with these people, do not even associate with them. Okay, so you're not partaking of what they're doing. Uh, You're not buying. You're you're not going to join them. There is something changing between your relationship. All right? Now, some of you are more truth people. You're very good at telling the truth. Okay, you might have to work on lovingly how to do this. Some of you are more loving people. You, You can't even talk to the... You just want to keep loving them, hoping that they'll come back. You need to work on the truth part of this. But with the fullness of grace, with the fullness of truth, it's our responsibility to reach out to the the person who is blatantly sinning against the Lord. Uh, It doesn't happen all at once. Think Think of it as if you're on a train, and the train is going toward a canyon, and the bridge is out in the canyon. Okay, And you're on the train with this person who's driving the train, and you're telling them to stop. And they're not stopping. Okay, and then, there's a, then, then there comes one opportunity, maybe a stop along the way where they can get off. You're like, dude, come on. You've got to give... And they pass that one by and they keep going. Okay, well, then there'll be another stop. There'll be another point where you can say something. Hey, hey, it didn't go so well last time. We should have gotten off there, but here's another chance. Let's, get, let's stop this. Let, and then they blow that one by. Okay, there's going to be multiple stops along the way. Do you understand that? You'll have multiple chances along the way to talk to this person. But there may come the point, as it goes on and on, where you do need to get off the train. And you do need to say, you're on your own. You're on your own. And then they need to hit rock bottom. But that's not right away. This takes time. Okay? So when it says, do not associate with them, that doesn't mean, that's it, you're out of the house. That's it, we're done. 
It may get to that point, but there are stops along the way. You're just constantly, lovingly intervening in their life. And then, in the end, it may get to the point where you need to stop. You're no longer the sanctifying voice to them. They're on their own. You're not going to bring it up anymore. You're not going to save them anymore. They're on their own. It may get to that point. And then they feel what concrete feels like as they hit it full speed. Then maybe you show up to help piece them back together. Well, call it sin. Cleanse the church. Clarify the distinction. I think there are probably three kinds of people here in this room right now, and, and I want to give you a chance to respond to what you've heard. I think some of you are believers in good standing with the Lord, and maybe you've enjoyed an extended season of victory. Praise God for that. Hey, you need to be sharing the triumphs that the Lord has brought about in your heart with other people who are struggling. Uh, you're the one who has to reach out to the person, okay? There are other people in this, in this room who you know of another believer who's in poor standing. You could give me the name of the person that you've been thinking about throughout this whole sermon. They've got an area in their life. They won't give it up. You've tried to talk to them. You don't know what to do. And God is nudging you to be the voice of truth to them. Maybe again, maybe for the first time. But he's laying a person on your soul. He's saying, you speak for me to them. Now, maybe God is calling you this morning to resolve in your heart that you will set the meeting this week. You will pick the place. You will choose your words carefully. You will bring your Bible. But you will be the one to faithfully share the voice of truth to this person. You will endure the relational aftermath of having the courage to lovingly intervene. Lovingly intervene for this person. You'll endure it. I want to challenge you to make that decision this morning that you're not going to put it off. You're not going to shy away. You're the one who God is sending to them. I think the third group, there are people this morning who you're a believer and you're in poor standing with God. You're hiding sin. You're excusing sin. You're minimizing sin. You're rationalizing it, maybe indulging in it, maybe advocating it. Listen, God wants you to be restored to a right relationship with him. And you have to believe that it's possible. You have not traveled so far off that he won't welcome you back. You're, you're a foot away from him. But you have to turn. And this is not the message to walk away from, continuing down the path of sin. God brought you here this morning to hear this for a reason. This is not the message that you turn around, you look in the mirror of God's word, you see the sin in your soul, <clears throat> and you disregard it. I want to give you a chance to respond to the message this morning too. Some of you have a person on your heart you're going to talk to. Some of you have sin. You need to come before the Lord this morning and pray. You need to take action, immediate, drastic action to respond to the message that he has given you. And so what we're going to do this morning is... It just so happens 
unlike our other room, we have plenty of space up front. And we have two people coming up front right now. We're just going to stand off to each side. And, and this gym floor is going to become an altar where you can come up to pray. Um, and if there's someone who's on your heart, a loved one who you have been broken over, I want you to come up and pray for them. Uh, this is your symbolic way of going before the Lord, bringing this person to him, intervening for them, and even courageously saying, Lord, this week I'm going to do it, but I need wisdom. And maybe there's something in your heart that you just need to get out. It could be small. It could be big. I don't know and no one else will know. But for whatever reason, uh, we're going to have this open right now, and Mark's going to come up and he's going to play a song. <clears throat> and this space up here is, is your time. Uh, it's your time to respond instantly to what you've heard. It's going to be a quiet space. These people are up here just to direct you where to go, but you'll just kneel, and you can take your time, and you can pray before the Lord. And I will pray for you, and the people sitting out here with their eyes closed and their heads bowed, they will pray also. But right now, why don't we close our eyes, and why don't we bow our heads? And beginning right now, if there is something you need, someone you need to bring before the Lord, you can stand up, you can come forward, you can kneel down, and you can pray right now. Get up, come forward, be bold, no one's watching. You have nothing to fear. You can get up. You can come forward. Just pray. Only God knows the reason you come forward. God, he hears you. Lord, we all just pray on behalf of those who are up here. Look upon the brokenness of your people 
Lord, those who have sinned, reassure them that you will forgive completely. You will welcome them back. Restore them. If they truly repent, I pray that they would leave their battle with sin here this morning. Pray that they would have the courage to talk to someone, a mentor, or a pastor, or a small group leader this week and and confess what's truly been going on. Help them not to believe the lie of the enemy that things will get worse if they bring this sin into the light. Lord, show them that things will get far better fast. Lord, those who are up here, they're carrying the weight for someone else. They see where the other person is heading. How Christ-like is that, that they would be willing to suffer as they bring truth up to the person, that they would be willing even to break a relationship rather than watch this person break their relationship with you. Father, honor them. Give them courage. May they know the words to say. May they know the time, the place, where in your word they should go. From this moment here, Lord, may stories of revival in the hearts of your people begin. May, may the story, even though it might be a long story, of a prodigal returning back to you, may it begin here. Lord, as we find sin in our own hearts in your church, give us the reassurance and the confidence, Lord, that you have canceled the record of death that stood against us. You have broken the power of sin so that sin shall not be our master. Lord, we can live in freedom and righteousness by your spirit. Give us this hope. Cleanse us, Lord, that we might be gleaming, righteous, pleasing to you, that we might know the joy and the peace that comes from walking in your word. Lord, all of this we lift up to you. You are faithful. You are loving. You are near. We trust all of our burdens to you in Jesus' name.